Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and joining the show today are the former England and Leicester wing Rory Underwood and former South African wing Tinas Delport. The Gloucester Heartbreak coach Susie Appleby discusses her team's win over Harlequins at the weekend. Plus we look at some of the work that NatWest's Rugby Force programme has been doing in helping expand the women's game. But first I'm joined here in the studio by former England and Lions fly half Rob Andrew. Hello, Rob. Hi, Brian. How are you? Okay, mate. Uh, week off, Six Nations. Um, lots of questions about this. Let's start with this one. Is Eddie Jones' honeymoon over? It might be if, the, if he loses the next two. Um, it's a really interesting phase, this, isn't it? Because um, they'll all get judged. All head coaches will get judged on um, their results in the end. And mostly that comes down to selection. And, yep. and how good a selector are they? I have to say, I think Eddie's been a pretty good selector since he took over. Um, he's got some big questions now. And, and this next, well, this next week around selection, this week and next week, um, he hasn't got many selections wrong in the last two years. Mm-hmm. We're now going to start to see um, how tough a selector he is where his mind is at. Because it, yep. ma- it doesn't matter what you and I say, and all the pundits can talk about who should play seven, who should play 10 or 12. There's only one bloke that matters, and it's the head coach. Mm-hmm. And he's got a lot on his shoulders this week and next week. Well, big games coming up because France, more difficult at home always. If they were to lose that one, no chance of a title. And facing Ireland, who were the pre-tournament favourites and have shown the best form could be staring on two wins out of five, which would be a very poor return, bearing in mind the home fixtures they've had. You're talking about selection, and I wrote a piece of Telegraph this week, and I said, I am always reluctant to pick players out of position because when they come under pressure, they revert to type. You don't want people thinking through things. You want people instinctively. And I said, look, they've got away in the back row with playing six and a halves or whatever you like to call them and players out of position. But the Scotland game brought into focus when the highest pressure comes on around the breakdown, that won't do. Yeah. And I'm now firmly in favour of picking an open side who plays there every week for his club 
and letting him learn, seeing how good he can be, because the opposite and what they've been doing, whilst it's been successful because the team's been generally successful, has shown when it comes down to the crucial games that it won't work. And this is what they're aiming at. It's not the run-up fixtures, whatever you The World Cup counts and the highest pressure will come, hopefully in the latter stages for them, and that won't be good enough. So, you know, I, I want them to do that. People have been talking about what do you do, who do you drop? Do you drop, um, well, Ken Taylor's asked, do you drop Cole, Hartley, Ford, Brown? The fact is, the alternatives for Cole, not there, Hartley, could make a case for that, but not going to do that because of the captaincy. Ford, we discussed the Ford Farrell axis. I think we both agreed that the, uh, the I think they should fight it out at 10. Uh, and Brown, he's, you know, he knows what he wants from Brown and he seems fairly sure about that. People have been talking about Nathan Hughes and the fact that he didn't pick Ben Teo because he said players who are back after long ill well, long injuries don't form well in the second game. Well, people are saying we shouldn't judge Hughes because he wasn't really fit, match fit. Well, he shouldn't have been playing then. You know, it's not fair to him or the team. Um and what do you do? Because the back row thing is absolutely crucial for them. The breakdown is so central to the way the modern game goes. They just have to, in my opinion, have a rethink there. Yeah, look, I agree with you. I'm absolutely with you on, on the specialists playing in test matches because it all happens too quickly. If you're, slight, if you're playing out of position, it's not fair on you as a player. And... and there's a, we've got to be careful not to overreact here, but there are some some issues that are starting to open up around balance of yeah. of, of parts of the team, balance in the front row, balance in the back row. Um, Rob Shaw is not an out and out. He's not an international seven. I still I still think he should play six. Um, yeah. I still think that he's the he's he's the glue that holds that back row together, but from six, not from seven. Yes, and somebody has to play at seven, and that sort of. Uh, it sort of doesn't matter who it is, really, as long as it's somebody that's going to go through the next 18 months as an out-and-out out seven. And, and he's got to back somebody, whether that's Underhill, whether it's Curry, whether it's Simmons, but again, he's not he's not really playing an out-and-out out seven. And that balance I, it will, will come back to haunt England, whether it's in the midfield or in the, in the back five. And the back five is unbalanced. We've got Itoji and, and Laws sort of playing at sixes, and they're, they're not out-and-out out sixes. And OK... People will say the game has changed and, you know, it's a 23-man squad. And, yeah, it is a 23-man squad, but but when things start to go wrong and your captain comes off um, and your back row's not settled, you know, it's just a difficult position to get into. And he's now got some key players who he has stood by all the way through. Hartley as captain, Cole at tight head, Rob Shaw in his, at, at six or seven, um, Brown um, at fullback, and is are they going to go through another eighteen months? And that's the challenge that Eddie's got as to where does he take this team now over the next eighteen months? When it looks as if over the last two years they're just sort of either been caught up by others um, and just slowing down a bit for whatever reason. And you know we're not in camp, and it's always very difficult. But I, I, I do think that you you don't have to be in camp to sense if something's not quite right. Mm-hmm. And you just have to look at what's on the field of play, whether that's a cricket team, a rugby team, a football team. 
I suspect there's something not quite right at Arsenal at the moment. I don't have to go. <laughs> I don't have to go into camp to watch that. <laughs> um, you just have to watch the team on the field, and you you know that something's not not quite right. Elliot Daly back in the picture. Any? Well, he likes him on the wing, doesn't he? Yeah, and I think. You know, Elliot, I think, should be in the team. I think he's, uh, when you look at his performances over the last 12 months, 18 months, you look at the Lions wing spots that Watson and Daly played. And I think there are there are some players who are good enough to perhaps have two international spots. And although we said earlier at the start of the programme, we want specialists playing in their position. I think Daly can play wing or outside centre at international level. I think Farrell can play 10 or 12. Um, so I think it's really a question of, what does he want to do at fullback? Is is Brown his go-to man for another eighteen months, or does he want does he want to have a look at what a back three that's slightly different that might have a Daly, Jack Noel, and Watson? What does that look like going going forward? Um, because it, it it needs sort of a, just a little a little shake-up, I think. Well, when you look at the never mind the actual time period, when you look at the number of games, depending on what they do with friendlies and so on, either 15, 16, 17 games left now before they're in Japan. So it's not actually you know, that long if you want to bed combinations in against combinations you know, from other sides, which will be very settled, very practised you know, and have lots of experience together. We'll come and discuss that towards the end of the show, but right now it's time to speak to Rory Underwood, the former England and Leicester wing, who's currently at Leicester's A game against Newcastle, which is dedication for you. Hello, Rory. Hi, Brian. How are you? All right, mate. Uh, Rob's with me. Um, your views on England's form so far? Obviously, to the high expectations we've uh, had of them over the last uh, couple of seasons, I don't think it's anywhere near as, as uh, high as that. Um, difficult first game and then 10 minutes of good rugby in the Wales game, went ahead and then an hour of pretty dire rugby which I think then continued into the Scottish game with a performance which looked as if they didn't expect Scotland to play as well as it did so it's a bit disappointing so far What do you think about the you know you, you, you're back three uh, expert we know what <laughs> Mike Brown does he does it very well um, Eddie Jones has stuck by him will he make the World Cup can he make the World Cup given I think he'd be 34 then or do you think uh, there should be some change? Yeah, good question. I think um, I just caught the tail end of your um, comments around how many games to go to the, the World Cup. Um, I think injuries have played a part, so he hasn't been able to have a... I don't think we've had a settled back three for a run of games. So has he got his settled um, back three yet, which might not include Mike Brown? I think that's a big question mark at the moment. Um, I, I think Anthony Watson is the... Uh, second choice um, full-back in between the lines. And I don't know whether I think um, Daly might be somebody they consider playing there. But again, it's the it's wingers that have been chopping and changing. So um, I don't think he's really got in his set in his mind what his, you know, his five players you're going to pick at the back there uh, for the World Cup. Hi, Rory. It's Rob here. Um, Hi, mate. I'm just sort of trying to work out in the modern sort of selection world that a, that a head coach is in is... is how, where does the sort of um, consistency of selection um, over this sort of squad, ro- not so much rotation, rotation happens in the modern game 
by accident because of injuries much more than yeah. it ever did. So, you know, I suppose in the good old days, sides did did stay together a bit longer in terms of knowing what the team was. The 2003 team, by the end, going into the World Cup, people knew what the team was. Um we were lucky enough to play in a team where we probably knew what the team was as well to a degree. The odd change here and there. Does yeah. the modern game mean that that you never quite know what your team is? So you you're always having to um, play with with your options and rotate a bit more. And does that detract then from the ability of players in in all of those key positions, whether it's the back three, the midfield, the back row, the halfbacks, to really get a deep understanding? I think you've answered your own question, Rob. Um, <laughs> I, I, I agree. I, you know, um, your involvement with uh, Newcastle at the time, my involvement here with Tigers, you know, the attritional rate of uh, professional rugby nowadays is massive compared to when we played. Um, and I think, I think the way you ha- try and think about the way you try and blood your players to be able to get them ready for you know, every four years is, is different to the way it was when we played. Um, and I think that is part of the problem he's got, uh, or that you know any team has got, I suppose. In the end, um, is having your all your best players available and fit. I, th- I think if you said of all the players that fit at the moment playing the Premier League for England, English qualified, would you be able to pick the best fifteen? I think most people would get there or thereabouts. There may be one or two positions where they may have a contention, but of course at the moment we can't do that because there are people injured. Rory, let's move on to the Premiership. Quinn's winning yep. over Bath. I mean, a big one, obviously. Exit yep. to 24, weakened Saracens 12. But uh, by and large, not much change. One significant thing, though, I think, Newcastle's very narrow win, very streetwise win in the end, over Gloucester. Um, Newcastle sitting fourth. Alistair, I mean, they're not too many points behind anyway, so the, the, the middle... Section is very close. Any danger of Leicester, Leicester missing out or not timing their runners as traditionally do to get a top four place? There's, there's, there's always that danger, especially with a Premiership where it's so, um, as you say, the middle part of it is so congested with regards to other, you know, teams beating each other. Um, mm. I think, uh, apart from two, possibly three teams, probably four that you can say have got no chance. The rest have still got a chance of qualifying for. Uh, the, the playoff places and of course people are still fighting for the um, uh, European Cup places um, you know it is a very competitive league um, it's uh, we've had you know two two good well needed wins against Saracens and uh, Exeter and suddenly we're now fifth and only what three four points behind Newcastle in fourth place and of course we've got to play them yet at Welford Road so you know things can change when you put a couple of um, uh, wins together but as, 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 as has been seen even at the top your Exeters and your Saracens have gone through phases where they've been losing games on the trot, um, partly because of the impact of injuries and also partly because of the, the impact of um, players being away for playing for England, which is a massive um, impact on the way, you know, what you are saying before, Rob, never mind England, you know, for club sides to try and work out how they're going to play, what their best players are. And of course, you lose your uh, international players for um, you know, a good third of the season. I, this might be my impression uh, only, but you mentioned your view. The, the the standard of the Premiership overall this year doesn't seem quite as high as last year. I, I, that's just an impression. I mean, I mean, when you say standard, of course, it depends in what context you mean. Being being pedantic, so 
is there more running rugby and points all over the place? I probably um, agree with you. There's a few sides that still do. Wasps obviously play that style of rugby and are scoring points. That is going out of fashion, but um, maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's the weather we've had over the last weekend, which did make it a high-scoring affair this last weekend. It's um, I don't know what the stats are. Again, there seems to be a lot of people injured when you look at some of the international players missing for England. Uh, that combined with players being injured for, for clubs. Uh, the knock-on effect of trying to make sure you keep uh, turning players over all the time. Does that have an impact on uh, standards? And, you know, are you saying that because you think it's a downward trend? I don't think so. It's like anything. No, I don't think it's a downward trend. I just think yeah, it's probably a reflection thing, of England. Right. I think so quite a lot of players um, look flat to me. I think yeah, the, no, I, I agree with that. I think I think some of that's been, you know, even with some of the players that have come back for us, I don't think uh, with England, they, I, I would agree with that comment about the England players. And so when George, Johnny and Dan come back to us, um, are they as, you know, effervescent and uh, all, all um, you know, at the top form with us as uh, as you'd want them to be? It's difficult, you know. It was, it, was, it was hard, but it was easier in our day when we played, but it's even harder for the guys now with the amount of, you know, for you, Brian, with the amount of line-out stuff you've got to remember and stuff and all the different things you've got to remember, it's a massive change going from Blaine's National Rugby to club rugby, as you know. Let's cut to the chase. Um, can you posit a top four for the end of the season? Give it a go. Oh, I've got uh, every confidence. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, it's, I feel very confident that's the case. Whether we will do is another thing I'll say, but I feel very confident. I think we've got um, five games left. Um Obviously, Newcastle at home, which is, I think we're playing three of the teams above us, so Bath, uh, Newcastle, um, and Wasps, um, of which we've got two of those at home. So, you know, that's, uh, that's hopefully on our side. Um, the home advantage, I think, is quite a big thing in the, uh, in, in the Premiership. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm always confident, you know, a couple of wins and suddenly you shoot up the table. So um, we shall see. But that's one of the beauties about uh, the competition at the moment. Rory? Great to talk to you again. Thanks very much, mate. Pleasure. Cheers, guys. Time now to speak to the former South African winger, Tidus Delport, in particular uh, about the, well, two wins for the South African franchises in the Guinness Pro 14. Tidus, hello. Hi, Brian. How are you? OK, we talked um, very early on uh, about how this experiment would go. And we were discussing whether the South African sides would, they'd take time, obviously, to get into the stride, but whether they would have an advantage when the weather conditions here turned uh, poor and in South Africa, the grounds were harder, the sun was out uh, and so on. Is that the case or, they, or is it really that the Cheetahs and the Kings have just got better? Um, I think the experience the Kings have gained so far this season, uh, take into context that they didn't really have a pre-season to go into this um, tournament, um, as well as that they've lost um, you know, a majority of their squad, um, is, is, is starting to, to come back. You know, they've had that exposure now of traveling different styles of play, um, but they'll, they'll, be, they'll be glad to be back home, the sun on their backs, um, you know, and the, the smell of uh, the fresh, fresh sea breeze uh, in their backs. You know, so I think that certainly helped, uh, as well as as them improving. I think defensively, the Kings have always, um, or so far, has been very frail. 
Um, they certainly worked on that over the weekend, um, well, probably the whole season, but it's, it's come to fruition over the weekend as well as the contest at the breakdown. Um, Attacking-wise, they've always shown um, some really good intent with some, some speedy wingers um, and some good you know, good constructive play in the midfield. But, um, you know, playing against a dragon side, that's probably a little bit low on confidence. Also in a developing phase, um, you know, it was it was right for the picking. I think the Cheetahs um, has always been the, the the South African side of the two that's, that was always going to contest a little better um, than the Kings because they are, um, you know, they, they're just a higher-ranked South African team with a lot more pedigree coming through. So, um, yes, of course, um, the home, home conditions have helped them, especially the Cheetahs. They've, they've struggled away from home. Although um, in this last um, away um, series that they played, the, the three games away, they did actually come very close to get their first away win, um, you know, Got a couple of uh, away losing bonus points, which was fantastic. But uh, the, the Kings are always going to be a, a three-year project where the Cheetahs um, were expected to, you know, to, to sort of probably punch, punch uh, just about where they are at the moment. Can we move on? Uh, Razi Erasmus, appointed Springbok coach. Good, bad, approve, um, disapprove. Yeah, I, I mean, I approve. He's, he's an old teammate of mine, and, uh, and you know, I spent many years playing alongside him in, in the same team in Super Rugby and at the Springboks. And you know, as, as a rugby thinker, um, Rassi was always ahead um, of the game. You know, he would even uh, in the late '90s um, he invested heavily in himself uh, in terms of an analysis equipment, uh, and he would spend hours and hours. Um, after games, um, analysing the game by itself. You know, uh, you, you and Rob know yourself, as late 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, you didn't have 25 team members in the, in the coaching, on the coaching side of it. You know, so a lot of the, lot of the responsibility was on the players to analyse and their technology um, wasn't um, as readily available as it is now. So um, he's always been a forward thinker, um, really challenging the way the game is played. Given the way in which you say he invested in himself and so on, how do you think and what do you think he's going to bring to the uh, Springboks role? Um, you know, with also with his role um, previously before he joined Munster um, in terms of director of rugby and, and running the development pathways and creating those development pathways in terms of the structures, um, he's going to bring all of that experience to you know, to Springbok Rugby um, with the on-field coaching as well as the, the wider responsibilities he's now going to have in terms of uh, director of rugby and overlooking, you know, probably the Springbok brand, um, if we may call it so. But, you know, he's, he's had re- reasonable amount of on-field um, coaching experience, you know, with Munster um, in, in, the, in the last pre- Pro 14 series, uh, Pro 12, Pro 14 um, I think that's probably the only um, area where I think he will definitely be tested is in terms of that on-field coaching and being in that high-pressure environment. But he certainly brings all the expertise um, and experience in terms of the structural development um, on, in, in, towards the team. Um, you know, so I think the big challenge that he will have to overcome, and the same as Alistair Kutsia, 
um, Heineken Mayer, Peter de Villiers have had is it's about access to overseas-based players. And that certainly had an impact on Alistair Kutsia's um, selection policies um, with certain players not being available to play or eligible to play uh, with the 30 cap rule. So, you know, if he can bridge... Um, those challenges and actually have access to some of the best players South Africa have, um, you know, that will certainly change um, the coaching environment for him. But if he can't get those foreign-based players um, to, to play for South Africa, you know, then he is going to be in that situation. This, as Alistair found himself, is he needs to compete against the best of the world, New Zealand, England, who's got, uh, you know, the best players available for their squad. So, um, Unless he can um, get access access to those players, he's always going to have quite a difficult task um, at hand. Yeah, uh, Tinas, what is the answer there for South Africa? Because the world game needs a really powerful South African rugby nation, just like actually we need a really powerful French nation. And both nations seem to have sort of slightly lost their way at the moment in terms of, and obviously the appointment of Razi is another attempt to try and fix it. But it surely it's about getting your best players available if you can't keep them in South Africa to actually allow them to be picked. Yeah, Rob, I mean, we've, we, we, we do have um, some other issues at play, um, you know, that makes it difficult for South African players and for the South African Rugby Union to retain the players. You know, you just look at the, the exchange rate, the, the, the power of the RAND or the lack of power of the RAND against uh, the euro and, and the pound. So, you know, you've, you've mentioned the French, um, you know, the French system there or the, the, the team there too. Um, you know, you look at the amount of, of South African internationals and South African players playing in France and playing their trade elsewhere. Um, you know, that is the biggest challenge. So um, it is difficult to balance um, because these guys will have club loyalties. The clubs pay um, big amounts to have these guys on the books and available. So there's going to be a, a, a lot of negotiations behind the scenes will have to go, um, you know, between the clubs and the South African Rugby Union to get access to these players. We've seen guys like Francois Lowe, Dwayne Vermeulen over the last three, four seasons do move over. But, you know, now both of those players are, are injured. You know, your body can only take so much punishment before it fatigues. And these guys have been playing Northern Hemisphere rugby, then going straight into Southern Hemisphere seasons, then back into Northern Hemisphere seasons. So, you know, regardless who you are and how good you are, you're, you know, unfortunately, the nature of the game is you, you, you need that break and you just can't retain um, that, that level of, of collisions. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's where they're coming short. So there's got to be a balance found between these guys getting a rest, but also being available, not just for their clubs, but also for South Africa. Tinas, that's great, as usual. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Cheers, Brian. Thanks a lot. Let's deal with the topic that came up about Eddie Jones getting abused by some halfwits in Manchester. Look, uh, people were saying on social media, and I know social media is not the be-all and end-all that the majority of people aren't on, uh, Twitter and so on. However, I would say this. The excuses that Jones is a confrontational character and said things about Reese Patchell and, you know, and said things about Scotland players, these were game-related comments. They weren't abusive and they were asked legitimate questions. And whatever you say, that sort of comment is made by a lot of coaches and nobody deserves that sort of abuse. Uh, the halfwits, frankly, the people who were responsible. i tell you what, is interesting to me, because I, I saw Eddie Jones at the station, because I was getting a London train, 
Um, and he wasn't very talkative, obviously. But I wondered why he was travelling on his own. Um, <laughs> Who got the most abuse, you or him? <laughs> no, I, I always get more. I, I mean, not, not, not necessarily on that journey. I got enough just walking from the ground to Wix to get the car back to the hotel, to be honest, with that stunningly original chant of you can shove your wherever. chariot, you know, wherever. I, um, I think it, look, I, it, it's, it's outrageous what, what happened to Eddie. I mean... But what? But you have to say, why was he? Why was he sort of stood outside a railway station in Manchester? Um, why didn't he just get a car from Edinburgh <laughs> down to to Manchester? Um, so the whole thing, you know, it was just. And you know what? He was travelling standard class. That's why I could. Unbelievable. I don't know whether he's trying to claim on expenses. You know, but I, whatever. But things, just... things are a bit tight at the end. <laughs> he's, he's got. He's got. 27 backroom staff, so he's yeah. got to go second class. Uh, now we've, dealt, we've dealt with that one. Yeah, Let's tell you what, his coaching staff, defence-wise, there are questions um, for Paul Gusted in terms of the outside channel, aren't there? Yeah. And how they manage that. Because when they were playing narrower, uh, the floated pass uh, caught them out. Well, everybody's caught them out. Italy mm. caught them out in the first game. Yep. Um, so right from the start, there have been... There's been things that that you look at from the outside and you go, we got caught out there, we got caught out in, in there, we're giving too many penalties away, mm. we look flat. Um, we, we don't, apart from a sort of sharp start to the game against Wales at, at Twickenham, um, we just haven't fired on all cylinders. Mm. And is that down to, um, is it Lions fatigue? Is it selection? Is it... Are they are they overtraining again? You don't know what's going on, but there's been a lot of talk about about that. Um, that they, they, they just look the, some flat, and mm-hmm. and actually on Saturday with a week off, whatever they've done in training, they're going to have to come out of the blocks absolutely flying in Paris with the right selection, the right balance to the side, and and they have a massive point to prove because if they get on top. In, in Paris, uh, we know, and this is true not just in our era but subsequent eras, that the French crowd are fairly quick to turn, aren't they? And, uh, and the French heads go down yeah. as well. So, the, so what they can't do is they start slowly and France get ahead the veneer of confidence. And it, it must be a veneer because they've had so many reverses prior to the, the win uh, in the last game will, you know, crumble and... You know, for a French team at home under pressure, especially to England, it can be a fairly unforgiving place. So whatever they do, you're right, they cannot start badly. The other coach who's under, well, I say under pressure, you know, no one's going to change them. No one wants to change them. No, they don't deserve to go, obviously. They've won 23 out of 25 games. But the continuing problems that England are having driving malls, they're just not good at it at the moment. And in terms of in and around the breakdown, technically, you know, Steve Borthwick, great line-out technician, and has done a lot of good work, undoubtedly, did it with Japan as well. But he is going to have to find, you know, ways because driving malls is a not necessarily a rote thing, but it's a thing you can perfect by organisation and so on. So he's got a big job to do uh, in this. But I suppose it depends, you know, on the personnel and where they're picked. Yeah, well, that goes back to the to the heart of this conversation right at the beginning of the show, which is um, 
the ultimate skill of a head coach is his selection. Yep. Um, I, I genuinely think Eddie has been a good selector right from the start. Um, he now he now is being tested in this area as a selector in two years in, two and a bit years in, with a team that he's got some players that may, may be not stalling. And we've got to be really careful here not to overreact. But, but equally, who can you point to in this England team that is flying, that is absolutely on top of their game? It's probably Joe Launchbury, Owen Farrell, probably the only two that you can say are anywhere near where they're capable of. There's very few others. Um, Mike Brown in the defensive game against Wales was, was outstanding. Um, so they need they, they need to, to go on and be a Grand Slam winning side or to go forward over the next 18 months. You need more than two players in your side mm. to be standout performers. There wasn't a single England player picked in most pundits' team of the Six Nations last weekend. Not a single player. What do you think about the suggestion that in the summer, I think they go to South Africa, that they ought to take or they ought to leave behind you know, a number of players, probably some of the Lions players and whatever, give them a break? Well, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that, definitely, um, given how much rugby they play and given that we always say that those countries post-Lions who've had the most Lions and England... England, Wales and Ireland probably, well, clearly had most of the Lions. Half the Welsh Lions haven't actually played this season. Most of them are injured. The English boys are sort of there apart from Billy, but but none of them, as we've just said, none of them are actually firing. So, again, that's going to be a big call for Eddie in the summer. Um, three test series in, in 2018 in South Africa is a big test, yeah. no matter who South Africa are playing. So getting all of this planning right to make sure that they hit autumn next year with four tests next autumn, including the All Blacks. That's a big autumn next year and a big Six Nations. Mm. This Six Nations, I think, is probably gone already in terms of the title, even if they beat France. I think Ireland will beat Scotland and then you know, England have probably got to beat Ireland by a massive margin to win yeah. the title. Over the course of the NatWest Six Nations, we're taking the opportunity to spend time focusing on grassroots rugby and specifically the work of NatWest's Rugby Force weekends up and down the country. This week, we're heading to Alton Rugby Club, who've built a women's team over the course of the last 12 months. Tell us more about it. It's Kathleen Digby, the ladies' coach, who I am informed is not only a level two rugby coach, but also a Scotland fan. So Six Nations isn't, hasn't been the usual graveyard this time round that it has. Nice to speak to you, Kathleen. Um, how do you get involved at Alton Rugby Club? Um, well, I've been involved with Alton for quite a long time, really. Um, in, in my younger years, it was sort of going along and watching um, some blokes play. Um, and then um, as I got a bit older and I had a son myself, um, he got involved in rugby. And so he was part of the teams through, you know, the age grade rugby right through to Colts. Um, so I spent a lot of um, afternoons and uh, mornings standing on the sidelines watching rugby. Um, and I've always been into rugby myself, so it kind of was a logical step to just get a bit more involved, really. You said you wanted to do something for women's rugby of all ages that was non-threatening. How did you go about building the women's side of the club and what have been the challenges? Well, I had gotten involved in touch rugby myself 
um, because I'm older than maybe I sound. Um, and so I was past the age of playing contact. So I got involved um, at another local club, which is Farnham, where they did some O2 Touch. And I just found it really enjoyable. Um, and I kind of thought, actually, this might be the way to get more women involved in rugby and into our club um, at Alton. So um, I set up a six-week um, course just aiming at, at, you know, getting women along, having a go, um, really focusing in on um, having fun um, and just a bit of fitness and that kind of thing. So um, I advertised, I, I added to people at the club and said, you know, can I, can I do this? And they were all for it. Um, we then advertised uh, this course, this six-week course. Um, and initially we had maybe eight people come along um, and then they enjoyed it so much. They all brought a friend and then they brought a friend and it just kind of blossomed from there, really. Reading about the club, the word inclusivity appears numerous times and it may seem obvious, but how did that help you build a team, a women's team? I think I think you've got to have the backing of everybody. You know, rugby was, uh, you know, for, for a very long time, a, a male-dominated um, sport. And um, I, I'm guessing there may be a few clubs around the country where that still kind of is the case. Um, so you really have to have the, the backing of all the people who are running the club. Um, and they were absolutely thrilled when I said, you know, look, let's let's do something to get more women into the club and get women playing and being part of the club. Um, and, and I think because I had the backing of, you know, the, the senior coaches and the, the managers and the people that were organising things, it just made it an awful lot easier. If you have people, adults who come down and they've never picked up a ball before, what's a starting point? Do you start where you start with the uh, minis? Well, I don't, I don't um, coach any of the minis, but I start with we're here to have fun. Um, most of our ladies hadn't picked up a rugby ball before. Um, I don't start with here, this is how you pass a rugby ball. I just start with, look, this is us having a game. Um, because at the moment we're mainly playing ladies touch rugby, um, it can be quite straightforward and you just need to give them a couple of simple rules, pass backwards, run forwards. You know, if you're touched, put the ball on the floor and step over it. So you can start with some real basics and then just gradually start to introduce rules. Um, I don't tend to um, go big on the skills because then people start to feel self-conscious if they don't think they've got the skills so initially I would just let them pass the ball however they want to pass the ball and then you gradually see them improve and they start to pass the ball like rugby players um, so it's it's very much based on fun um, and and just having a laugh and and then the skills just develop from there. If it's a club's first time taking part in NatWest Rugby Force what's the simplest thing that they can do that will have a big impact? I think it, it might depend a bit on what it is they want to achieve. Um, if they want to attract more people into the club, then I guess it's looking at how can they make their facilities more attractive. Um, you know, for example, um, having been to many, many rugby clubs around, um, something like the ladies lose or something that can quite often be just appalling. And actually, if you walk into ladies lose and, and they're attractive and they're nice and they're clean and, um, you know, they're warm, then, you know, things like that can actually make quite a difference for people. Um, and I guess in terms of the facilities within the clubhouse, you know, being able to get a cup of tea and sit down in a, a nice warm place um, and can be quite important for people who are, who are just coming along. Um, if, if you're talking about attracting players, then it might be looking at your changing rooms. Um, and how they can be spruced up a bit to make them a, a bit better. 
um, even just things like in, in terms of making it easier for the coaches, um, getting all the kits sorted out and things like that, because that can just, you know, kit bags and stuff can just become a nightmare. Everybody chucks things in a cupboard and then nobody can find anything. So it, it kind of depends a little bit on, on you know, who, who they're trying to attract and, and who they're trying to make things a bit easier for. Well, you said the first time about eight turned up, but you've now got about 25 regular players and about 40 women involved in the club. You're hosting a girls-only rugby camp in October 2017, led by Rachel Burford. What's the, what's the your medium, long-term aim for women's rugby at Alton? So at the moment, um, yeah, as you say, we've we've had about 40 women who've actually had a goal playing the touch rugby. I'd like to develop that into full contact. So initially, when a lot of those ladies came down, you know, I said, oh, you know, what about contact? They went, oh, no, 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 no way. But now they're starting to say, oh, yeah, I'd give that a bit of a go. So I'd like to develop um, us to have a ladies contact team as well. Um, we've currently got um, girls playing um, at a local school on a Tuesday night that... Um, we're we're going to develop into our girls' session at Alton uh, Rugby Club, and um, so I'd really like to have uh, two girls' teams under 13, under 15, and a ladies' team. And then as the girls get older and feed through, they can you know they could become an under 18s team. So it's it's at the moment the the numbers of girls aren't quite big enough for that, but um, I just think I need to you know get the word out there and and get them attracting their friends and other schools hearing about it and getting involved. Well, let's hope that this helps. Kathleen, you're doing great work. Thank you very much and good luck with building the greater rugby community. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, we go now from grassroots rugby to Premier 15s. Snow decimated the women's fixture list. Barg lost a heartbreak against Quinsley. It turned out to be a tight victory for home side. And we can now speak to the uh, Gloucester Heartbreak coach, Susie Appleby. Hello, Susie. Hi, Brian. Snow, I think you had a lot of people... Uh, helping you clear the pitch, didn't you? Oh, yeah. The um, the locals around King's Home were absolutely fantastic. So, you know, we put it out there on social media to come and help clear the snow, and they came in droves, which was just amazing. So, um, yeah, fair play to them and the ground staff. And actually, Dino and his boys, when they turned up and got off the bus from Falcon, <laughs> they pitched in as well. So it was a real, yeah, it was a real <laughs> team effort to get it cleared. Um, it would be unkind to say, well, there's nothing better to do in Gloucester. So I'm not going to say that. Um, but anyway, look, it turned out that um, you beat Quinns, which is a great win for you because Quinns have been flying high. Uh, 40 points to 36 sounds quite an exciting game. How do you see it? Yeah, it was. Um, to be honest, it was important for us to um, to try and make the game happen because we've been performing really well since Christmas. So... To lose that continuity would have, you know, would have maybe, you know, just set us back a little. So, I mean, there's already um, a bit of a lack of continuity with Six Nations games and two-week gaps, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So we were really keen to make the game happen, as I said, because, you know, we came off the back of having a draw against Saris, who were yep. top of the league, uh, really good performance. So we were just um, keen to, like I said, consolidate that performance. And as you alluded to, uh, Quins are a really, really strong side. So we knew we were going to be up with a massive battle and that's exactly what we got. So, um, yeah, the girls did really well. Like it, the lead changed hands that many times. You know, we had a, a really poor start for the first 20 and let, let three tries in um, and just didn't really show up. And then we just started to play, which I was confident that we would do. I don't know if we were a bit kind of, you know, awestruck, you know, or playing at King's Home or whatever. Anyway, we then started to play and, you know, and then really performed well in the second half. So, um, yeah, it was exciting. It was exciting. But, 
you know, the challenge, Brian, is to, you know, when we do go ahead, to be able to put games to bed because yes. you never know what's going to come with a team like Quinns and Saris, et cetera, et cetera. So, and we didn't quite do that, which led to a bit of a nail-biting finish. But, you know, we hung on. So that was the main thing. Uh, your England international, Ellie uh, Kildun, um, two tries. Uh, I say to you, half-time introduction, what, what, why, why then? So... Um, because it's Six Nations time, England are kind of managing minutes and oh, making sure that they really <laughs> look after their look after their players. So it was kind of interesting from a coaching perspective to see when those England players would be on the field and yeah. to try and play the game accordingly. So you probably, you may have noticed that Sarah Byrne played the first half yep. and then went off. Um, and Ellie was introduced at half time. In my opinion, the game was going to be more broken up by then mm-hmm. um, and she'd be able to run more, which is exactly what happened. So from that perspective, um, you know, it was it was spot on, really. Um, having said that, I expected Leanne Riley, their scrum half, to start the game and not finish the game. So, yeah. so you know, the, the momentum, like I said, swung a bit because she's an outstanding scrum half. So, as I said, it was a, bit, a little bit of um, of chess we were playing as coaches um, to try and get the best out of our squads. But you know, this type, this Six Nations time really tests tests our squads to see how what our strength in depth. Um, you know, and, and, and some squads are really struggling. Um, I'd like to say that our squad is really quite strong and in its depth and therefore, you know, we're, we're doing all right in these Six Nations periods. Um, famous last words, yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like you won the game of chess. Um, so, and bearing in mind the draw with Saracens uh, week before, fantastic form. I hope it continues. Thanks for speaking to us. Uh, you're most welcome, Brian. Looking forward to the weekend, Wales, Italy. Uh, any chance for the visitors? It says here. The answer is no. Uh, it's as simple <laughs> as that. Sorry, we don't need to do that. And that's yeah. not being dismissive of Italy. They're just not at the moment they're capable no, uh, of winning, sadly. and certainly not, um, certainly not uh, at the Principality or the Millennium or whatever you like to call about it. The big one, though, I think you've got to say the big one: Ireland, uh, Scotland. Uh, Furlong and Henderson back for Ireland. Richie Gray, Dunbar, Hardy, Fraser Brown, Xander Ferguson, uh, Daryl Marfo added to the Scotland squad. And they will be flying. You know, their confidence will be very high, but they will not face a team that allows them the room, the wherewithal and the freedom uh, that England did. And of course, their away form is nowhere near what their Murrayfield form has been so how do you see that one going well I think that again you you put the question to Scotland don't you we sat here before the first game of the championship with Scotland going to Wales saying Scotland have to turn up they have to deliver the expectation is there and they were rubbish to mm. be to be frank um, can they work it they've got some good players we said mm. all through they've got good players um, they, they had a better balance to their team against England they did have players missing in Cardiff now they've got a chance to actually go up against a very good Ireland side, go into Dublin. The Scots players, they play in, in the Pro 14 all the time. Um, can they go into Dublin and actually do something and, and actually compete against what is a very good Ireland side with some very good players? If they can do that, um, they have gone to Dublin in the past and, and, and caused upsets. Will um, it be another step? You know, we're talking about the development uh, of the team, and you can see the pathway, uh, not just um, 
recently through Gregor Townsend, but previously under the previous coaching regime, and they've now cracked the home bit. Murrayfield is not an easy place to play, whoever you are, because of the way that they're inspired to play, because of the crowd. The next bit that needs putting in place is the away thing, and if they do that, then you can genuinely say, actually, the Scotland team is going places, we don't know where it will end, but yes, you can see the pathway, and yes, the trajectory is upwards. If they don't do that, then it's going to be very disappointing for them, isn't it? Because after the promise uh, and the way that uh, they dispatched England, they will, if they don't get close uh, or win, then they will and should probably feel very disappointed. Yeah, they, they should. And that, they can actually lose in Dublin and come out with credit. You know, they can still go to Dublin and go toe-to-toe with Ireland. They've got and, to get close, Yeah, they? they've got to get close, but, but you know, they can lose with, with credit. If they go and they go down by 20 points and it's another feeble away performance, then then you've got to question all sorts of things. But if they can go there and, and really take on Ireland and, and have a narrow defeat or, I mean, a, a win would be a big win for them. Yes, it, it would. It would be a very, very big win for them. Um, I, I think that's probably too much at this stage, to be honest. Um, and that puts Ireland then in the driving seat. Whatever happens in Paris, it puts Ireland in the driving seat um, for Twickenham the following week. And the Irish side... Of now, well, they do definitely play better in Dublin. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, the statistics show in the Six Nations that home sides just do a lot better. But overall, when you've seen Ireland play, irrespective of the one or two injuries they've had to keep players, the fact is that they look a cogent team. They look, they know what they're doing. The combinations you know, are, are there, the structure is there, and they'll be able to cope with the withdrawal of seminal players like um, um, Take Furlong and so on. So you would be expecting, I would be expecting them to have too much for Scotland because I just think that they will have analysed the game and closed down the areas, not play loosely, not give the momentum uh, for penalties and turnovers. And, of course, when you get the Irish crowd, very partisan, obviously, and quite rightly, then, you know, they should succeed. You've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. Thank you to my co-host, Rob Andrew, and my producer, as always, Abby Patterson. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast. After all, it's completely free, and that way you'll never miss an episode. We'll be back next week, but for now, goodbye. 
Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 